Chapter Four, Part A of Roderick Hudson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Roderick Hudson by Henry James. Chapter Four, Experience. Rowland passed the summer in England, staying with several old friends and two or three new ones. On his arrival, he felt it on his conscience to write to Mrs. Hudson and inform her that her son had relieved him of his tutelage. He felt that she considered him an incorruptible mentor, following Roderick like a shadow, and he wished to let her know the truth. But he made the truth very comfortable, and gave a succinct statement of the young man's brilliant beginnings. He owed it to himself, he said, to remind her that he had not judged lightly, and that Roderick's present achievements were more profitable than his inglorious drudgery at Messrs. Stryker and Spooner's. He was now taking a well-earned holiday, and proposing to see a little of the world. He would work none the worse for this. Every artist needed to knock about and look at things for himself. They had parted company for a couple of months, for Roderick was now a great man, and beyond the need of going about with the keeper. But they were to meet again in Rome in the autumn, and then he should be able to send her more good news. Meanwhile he was very happy in what Roderick had already done, especially happy in the happiness it must have brought to her. He ventured to ask to be kindly commended to Miss Garland. His letter was promptly answered, to his surprise, in Miss Garland's own hand. The same mail also brought an epistle from Cecilia. The latter was voluminous, and we must content ourselves with giving an extract. Your letter was filled with an echo of that brilliant Roman world which made me almost ill with envy. For a week after I got it I thought Northampton really unpardonably tame. But I am drifting back again to my old deeps of resignation, and I rush to the window when anyone passes with all my old gratitude for small favours. So Roderick Hudson is already a great man, and you turn out to be a great prophet? My compliments to both of you. I never heard of anything working so smoothly. And he takes it all very quietly, and doesn't lose his balance nor let it turn his head? You judged him, then, in a day better than I had done in six months, for I really did not expect that he would settle down into such a jog-trot of prosperity. I believed he would do fine things, but I was sure he would intersperse them with a good many follies, and that his beautiful statues would spring up out of the midst of a straggling plantation of wild oats. But from what you tell me, Mr. Stryker may now go hang himself. There is one thing, however, to say as a friend in the way of warning. That candid soul can keep a secret, and he may have private designs on your equanimity which you don't begin to suspect. What do you think of his being engaged to Miss Garland? The two ladies had given no hint of it all winter, but a fortnight ago, when those big photographs of his statues arrived, they first pinned them up on the wall, and then trotted out into the town, made a dozen calls, and announced the news. Mrs. Hudson did at least. Miss Garland, I suppose, sat at home writing letters. To me, I confess, the thing was a perfect surprise. I had not a suspicion that all the while he was coming so regularly to make himself agreeable on my veranda, he was quietly preferring his cousin to any one else. Not, indeed, that he was ever at particular pains to make himself agreeable. I suppose he has picked up a few graces in Rome. But he must not acquire too many. If he is too polite when he comes back, Miss Garland will count him as one of the lost. She will be a very good wife for a man of genius and such a one as they are often shrewd enough to take. 
she'll darn his stockings and keep his accounts, and sit at home and trim the lamp and keep up the fire, while he studies the beautiful and pretty neighbours at dinner-parties. The two ladies are evidently very happy, and to do them justice, very humbly grateful to you. Mrs. Hudson never speaks of you without tears in her eyes, and I am sure she considers you a specially patented agent of Providence. Verily, it's a good thing for a woman to be in love. Miss Garland has grown almost pretty. I met her the other night at a tea-party. She had a white rose in her hair, and sang a sentimental ballad in a fine contralto voice. Miss Garland's letter was so much shorter that we may give it entire. My dear sir, Mrs. Hudson, as I suppose you know, has been for some time unable to use her eyes. She requests me, therefore, to answer your favour of the 22nd of June. She thanks you extremely for writing, and wishes me to say that she considers herself in every way under great obligations to you. Your account of her son's progress, and the high estimation in which he is held, has made her very happy, and she earnestly prays that all may continue well with him. He sent us, a short time ago, several large photographs of his two statues, taken from different points of view. We know little about such things, but they seem to us wonderfully beautiful. We sent them to Boston to be handsomely framed, and the man, on returning them, wrote us that he had exhibited them for a week in his store, and that they had attracted great attention. The frames are magnificent, and the pictures now hang in a row on the parlour wall. Our only quarrel with them is that they make the old papering and the engravings look dreadfully shabby. Mr. Stryker stood and looked at them the other day full five minutes, and said at last that if Roderick's head was running on such things, it was no wonder he could not learn to draw up a deed. We lead here so quiet and monotonous a life, that I am afraid I can tell you nothing that will interest you. Mrs. Hudson requests me to say that the little more or less that may happen to us is of small account, and we live in our thoughts, and our thoughts are fixed on her dear son. She thanks heaven he has so good a friend. Mrs. Hudson says this is too short a letter, but I can say nothing more. Yours most respectfully, Mary Garland. It is a question whether the reader will know why, but this letter gave Rowland extraordinary pleasure. He liked its very brevity and meagreness, and there seemed to him an exquisite modesty in its saying nothing from the young girl herself. He delighted in the formal address and conclusion. They pleased him as he had been pleased by an angular gesture in some expressive girlish figure in an early painting. The letter renewed that impression of strong feeling combined with an almost rigid simplicity which Roderick's betrothed had personally given him and its homely stiffness seemed a vivid recollection of life, concentrated, as the young girl had borrowed warrant from her companion to say, in a single devoted idea. The monotonous days of the two women seemed to Roland's fancy to follow each other like the tick-tick of a great timepiece, marking off the hours which separated them from the supreme felicity of clasping the faraway son and lover to lips sealed with the excess of joy. He hoped that Roderick, now that he had shaken off the oppression of his own importunate faith, was not losing a tolerant temper for the silent prayers of the two women at Northampton. He was left to vain conjectures, however, as to Roderick's actual moods and occupations. 
He knew he was no letter-writer, and that in the young sculptor's own phrase, he had at any time rather build a monument than write a note. But when a month had passed without news of him, he began to be half anxious and half angry, and wrote him three lines in the care of a continental banker, begging him at least to give some sign of whether he was alive or dead. A week afterwards came an answer, brief and dated Baden-Baden. "'I know I have been a great brute,' Roderick wrote, "'not to have sent you a word before, but really I don't know what has got into me. I have lately learned terribly well how to be idle.' I am afraid to think how long it is since I wrote to my mother or to Mary. Heaven help them, poor, patient, trustful creatures. I don't know how to tell you what I am doing. It all seems amusing enough while I do it, but it would make a poor show in the narrative intended for your formidable eyes. I found Baxter in Switzerland, or rather he found me, and he grabbed me by the arm and brought me here. I was walking twenty miles a day in the Alps, drinking milk in lonely chalets, sleeping as you sleep, and thinking it was all very good fun. But Baxter told me it would never do, that the Alps were d rot that Baden-Baden was the place, and that if I knew what was good for me I would come along with him. It is a wonderful place, certainly, though thank the Lord Baxter departed last week, blaspheming horribly at trente et quarante. But you know all about it and what one does, what one is liable to do. I have succumbed in a measure to the liabilities, and I wish I had someone here to give me a thundering good blowing up. Not you, dear friend, you would draw too mild. You have too much of the milk of human kindness. I have fits of horrible homesickness for my studio, and I shall be devoutly grateful when the summer is over and I can go back and swing a chisel. I feel as if nothing but the chisel would satisfy me, as if I could rush in a rage at a block of unshaped marble. There are a lot of the Roman people here, English and American. I live in the midst of them and talk nonsense from morning till night. There is also someone else, and to her I don't talk sense, nor, thank heaven, mean what I say. I confess I need a month's work to recover my self-respect. These lines brought Roland no small perturbation, the more that what they seemed to point to surprised him. During the nine months of their companionship, Roderick had shown so little taste for dissipation that Roland had come to think of it as a cancelled danger, and it greatly perplexed him to learn that his friend had apparently proved so pliant to opportunity. But Roderick's illusions were ambiguous, and it was possible they might simply mean that he was out of patience with a frivolous way of life, and fretting wholesomely over his absent work. It was a very good thing, certainly, that idleness should prove on experiment to sit heavily on his conscience. Nevertheless, the letter needed to Roland's mind a key. The key arrived a week later. In common charity, Roderick wrote, lend me a hundred pounds. I have gambled away my last franc. I have made a mountain of debts. Send me the money first. Lecture me afterwards. Roland sent the money by return of mail. Then he proceeded, not to lecture, but to think. He hung his head. He was acutely disappointed. He had no right to be, he assured himself. But so it was. Roderick was young, impulsive, unpractised in stoicism. It was a hundred to one that he was to pay the usual vulgar tribute to folly. But his friend had regarded it as securely gained to his own belief in virtue, that he was not as other foolish youths are, and that he would have been capable of looking at folly in the face and passing on his way. 
Roland, for a while, felt a sore sense of wrath. What right had a man who was engaged to that fine girl in Northampton to behave as if his consciousness were a common blank, to be overlaid with coarse sensations? Yes, distinctly, he was disappointed. He had accompanied his missive with an urgent recommendation to leave Baden-Baden immediately, and an offer to meet Roderick at any point he would name. The answer came promptly. It ran as follows. Send me another fifty pounds. I have been back to the tables. I will leave as soon as the money comes and meet you at Geneva. There I will tell you everything. There is an ancient terrace at Geneva, planted with trees and studied with benches, overlooked by gravely aristocratic old dwellings and overlooking the distant Alps. A great many generations have made it a lounging place. A great many friends and lovers strolled there, a great many confidential talks and momentous interviews gone forward. Here, one morning, sitting on one of the battered green benches, Roderick, as he promised, told his friend everything. He had arrived late the night before. He looked tired, and yet flushed and excited. He made no professions of penitence, but he practised an unmitigated frankness, and his self-reprobation might be taken for granted. He implied in every phrase that he had done with it all, and that he was counting the hours till he could get back to work. We shall not rehearse his confession in detail. Its main outline will be sufficient. He had fallen in with some very idle people, and had discovered that a little example and a little practice were capable of producing on his own part a considerable relish for their diversions. What could he do? He never read, and he had no studio. In one way or another he had to pass the time. He passed it in dangling about several very pretty women in wonderful Paris toilettes, and reflected that it was always something gained for a sculptor to sit under a tree, looking at his leisure into a charming face, and saying things that made it smile and play its muscles and part its lips and show its teeth. Attached to these ladies were certain gentlemen who walked about in clouds of perfume, rose at midday and supped at midnight. Roderick had found himself in the mood for thinking them very amusing fellows. He was surprised at his own taste, but he let it take its course. It led him to the discovery that to live with ladies who expect you to present them with expensive bouquets, to ride with them in the black forest on well-looking horses, to come into their opera-boxes on nights when Patti sang, and prices were consequent, to propose little light suppers at the conversation house after the opera, or drives by moonlight to the castle, to be always arrayed and anointed, trinketed and gloved, that to move in such society, we say, though it might be a privilege, was a privilege with a penalty attached. But the tables made things easy. Half the Baden world lived by the tables. Roderick tried them, and found that at first they smoothed his path delightfully. The simplification of matters, however, was only momentary, for he soon perceived that to seem to have money, and to have it in fact, exposed a good-looking young man to peculiar liabilities. At this point of his friend's narrative, Roland was reminded of Madame de Cruchecasset in the Newcombs, and though he had listened in tranquil silence to the rest of it, he found it hard not to say that all this had been, under the circumstances, a very bad business. Roderick admitted it with bitterness, and then told how much, measured simply financially, it had cost him. 
His luck had changed, the tables had ceased to back him, and he had found himself up to his knees in debt. Every penny had gone of the solid sum which had seemed a large equivalent of those shining statues in Rome. He had been an ass, but it was not irreparable. He could make another statue in a couple of months. Roland frowned. For heaven's sake, he said, don't play such dangerous games with your facility. If you have got facility, revere it, respect it, adore it, treasure it, don't speculate on it. And he wondered what his companion, up to his knees in debt, would have done if there had been no good-natured Roland Mallet to lend a helping hand. But he did not formulate his curiosity audibly, and the contingency seemed not to have presented itself to Roderick's imagination. The young sculptor reverted to his late adventures again in the evening, and this time talked of them more objectively, as the phrase is, more as if they had been the adventures of another person. He related half a dozen droll things that had happened to him, and, as if his responsibility had been disengaged by all this free discussion, he laughed extravagantly at the memory of them. Roland sat perfectly grave on principle. Then Roderick began to talk of half a dozen statues that he had in his head, and set forth his design with his usual vividness. Suddenly, as it was relevant, he declared that his Baden doings had not been altogether fruitless, for that the lady who had reminded Roland of Madame de Cruchecassé was tremendously statuesque. Roland at last said that it all might pass if he felt he was really the wiser for it. By the wiser, he added, I mean the stronger in purpose, in will. Oh, don't talk about will, Roderick answered, throwing back his head and looking at the stars. This conversation also took place in the open air, on the little island in the shooting Rhone where Jean-Jacques has a monument. The will, I believe, is the mystery of mysteries. Who can answer for his will? Who can say beforehand that it's strong? There are all kinds of indefinable currents moving to and fro between one's will and one's inclinations. People talk as if the two things were essentially distinct, on different sides of one's organism, like the heart and the liver. Mine, I know, are much nearer together. It all depends upon circumstances. I believe there is a certain group of circumstances possible for every man, in which his will is destined to snap like a dry twig. "'My dear boy,' said Roland, "'don't talk about the will being destined. The will is destiny itself. That's the way to look at it.' "'Look at it, my dear Roland,' Roderick answered, "'as you find most comfortable. One conviction I have gathered from my summer's experience,' he went on, "'it's as well to look it frankly in the face, is that I possess an almost unlimited susceptibility to the influence of a beautiful woman.' Roland stared, then strolled away, softly whistling to himself. He was unwilling to admit even to himself that this speech had really the sinister meaning it seemed to have. In a few days the two young men made their way back to Italy, and lingered a while in Florence before going on to Rome. In Florence Roderick seemed to have won back his old innocence, and his preference for the pleasures of study over any others. Roland began to think of the Baden episode as a bad dream or at the worst as a mere sporadic piece of disorder, without roots in his companion's character. They passed a fortnight looking at pictures, and exploring for out-of-the-way bits of fresco and carving, and Roderick recovered all his earlier fervour of appreciation and comment. In Rome he went eagerly to work again, 
and finished in a month two or three small things he had left standing on his departure. He talked the most joyous nonsense about finding himself back in his old quarters. On the first Sunday afternoon following their return, on their going together to St. Peter's, he delivered himself of a lyrical greeting to the great church and to the city in general, in a tone of voice so irrepressibly elevated that it rang through the nave in rather a scandalous fashion, and almost arrested a procession of canons who were marching across to the choir. He began to model a new statue, a female figure, of which he had said nothing to Roland. It represented a woman leaning lazily back in her chair, with her head drooping as if she were listening, a vague smile on her lips, and a pair of remarkably beautiful arms folded in her lap. With rather less softness of contour, it would have resembled the noble statue of Agrippina in the capital. Roland looked at it, and was not sure he liked it. "'Who is it? What does it mean?' he asked. "'Anything you please,' said Roderick, with a certain petulance. I call it a reminiscence. Roland then remembered that one of the Baden ladies had been statuesque, and asked no more questions. This, after all, was a way of profiting by experience. A few days later he took his first ride of the season on the Campagna, and, as on his homeward way he was passing across the long shadow of a ruined tower, he perceived a small figure at a short distance bent over a sketch-book. As he drew near, he recognized his friend Singleton. The honest little painter's face was scorched to flame-color by the light of southern suns, and borrowed an even deeper crimson from his gleeful greeting of his most appreciative patron. He was making a careful and charming little sketch. On Roland's asking him how he had spent his summer, he gave an account of his wanderings which made poor Mallet sigh with a sense of more contrasts than one. He had not been out of Italy, but he had been delving deep into the picturesque heart of the lovely land, and gathering a wonderful store of subjects. He had rambled about among the unvisited villages of the Apennines, pencil in hand and knapsack on back, sleeping on straw and eating black bread and beans, but feasting on local color, rioting, as it were, on chiaroscuro, and laying up a treasure of pictorial observations. He took a devout satisfaction in his hard-earned wisdom and his happy frugality. Roland went the next day by appointment to look at his sketches, and spent a whole morning turning them over. Singleton talked more than he had ever done before, explained them all, and told some quaintly humorous anecdote about the production of each. "'Dear me, how I have chattered!' he said at last. "'I am afraid you had rather have looked at the things in peace and quiet.' I didn't know I could talk so much, but somehow I feel very happy. I feel as if I had improved. That you have, said Roland. I doubt whether an artist ever passed a more profitable three months. You must feel much more sure of yourself. Singleton looked for a long time, with great intentness, at a knot in the floor. Yes, he said at last, in a fluttered tone, I feel much more sure of myself. I have got more facility and he lowered his voice, as if he were communicating a secret which it took some courage to impart. I hardly like to say it, for fear I should after all be mistaken. But since it strikes you, perhaps it's true. It's a great happiness. I would not exchange it for a great deal of money. Yes, I suppose it's a great happiness, said Roland. 
I shall really think of you as living here in a state of scandalous bliss. I don't believe it's good for an artist to be in such brutally high spirits. Singleton stared for a moment, as if he thought Rowland was in earnest. Then suddenly fathoming the kindly jest, he walked about the room scratching his head and laughing intensely to himself. And Mr. Hudson, he said, as Rowland was going, I hope he is well and happy. He is very well, said Rowland. He is back at work again. Ah, there's a man, cried Singleton, who has taken his start once for all, and doesn't need to stop and ask himself, in fear and trembling every month or two, whether he is advancing or not. When he stops, it's to rest. And where did he spend his summer? The greater part of it at Baden-Baden. Ah, that's in the Black Forest, cried Singleton, with profound simplicity. They say you can make capital studies of trees there. No doubt, said Roland with a smile, laying an almost paternal hand on the little painter's yellow head. Unfortunately, trees are not Roderick's line. Nevertheless, he tells me that at Baden he made some studies. Come when you can, by the way, he added after a moment, to his studio, and tell me what you think of something he has lately begun. Singleton declared that he would come delightedly, and Roland left him to his work. He met a number of his last winter's friends again, and called upon Madame Grandoni, upon Miss Blanchard, and upon Gloriani shortly after their return. The ladies gave an excellent account of themselves. Madame Grandoni had been taking sea-baths at Rimini, and Miss Blanchard painting wild-flowers in the Tyrol. Her complexion was somewhat browned, which was very becoming, and her flowers were uncommonly pretty. Gloriani had been in Paris, and had come away in high good humour, finding no one there, in the artist world, cleverer than himself. He came in a few days to Roderick's studio, one afternoon when Roland was present. He examined the new statue with great deference, said it was very promising, and abstained, considerately, from irritating prophecies. But Roland fancied he observed certain signs of inward jubilation on the clever sculptor's part and walked away with him to learn his private opinion. "'Certainly. I liked it as well as I said,' Gloriani declared in answer to Roland's anxious query. "'Or rather I liked it a great deal better. I didn't say how much, for fear of making your friend angry. But one can leave him alone now, for he's coming round. I told you he couldn't keep up the transcendental style, and he has already broken down. Don't you see it yourself, man?' "'I don't particularly like this new statue,' said Roland. "'That's because you're a purist. It's deuced clever, it's deuced knowing, it's deuced pretty, but it isn't the topping high art of three months ago. He has taken his turn sooner than I supposed. What has happened to him? Has he been disappointed in love? But that's none of my business. I congratulate him on having become a practical man.' Roderick, however, was less to be congratulated than Gloriani had taken it into his head to believe. He was discontented with his work. He applied himself to it by fits and starts. He declared that he didn't know what was coming over him. He was turning into a man of moods. Is this of necessity what a fellow must come to? he asked of Roland, with a sort of peremptory flash in his eye, which seemed to imply that his companion had undertaken to insure him against perplexities, and was not fulfilling his contract. This damnable uncertainty when he goes to bed at night, as to whether he is going to wake up in a working humour or in a swearing humour. 
Have we only a season, over before we know it, in which we can call our faculties our own? Six months ago I could stand up to my work like a man day after day, and never dream of asking myself whether I felt like it. But now, some mornings, it's the very devil to get going. My statue looks so bad when I come into the studio that I have twenty minds to smash it on the spot, and I lose three or four hours in sitting there, moping and getting used to it. Rowland said that he supposed that this sort of thing was the lot of every artist, and that the only remedy was plenty of courage and faith, and he reminded him of Gloriani's having forewarned him against these sterile moods the year before. "'Gloriani's an ass,' said Roderick almost fiercely. He hired a horse and began to ride with Rowland on the Campagna. This delicious amusement restored him in a measure to cheerfulness, but seemed to Rowland on the whole not to stimulate his industry. Their rides were always very long, and Roderick insisted on making them longer by dismounting in picturesque spots and stretching himself in the sun among a heap of overtangled stones. He let the scorching Roman luminary beat down upon him with an equanimity which Rowland found it hard to emulate. But in this situation Roderick talked so much amusing nonsense, that for the sake of his company Rowland consented to be uncomfortable, and often forgot that, though in these diversions the days passed quickly, they brought forth neither high art nor low. And yet it was perhaps by their help, after all, that Roderick secured several mornings of ardent work on his new figure, and brought it to rapid completion. One afternoon, when it was finished, Roland went to look at it, and Roderick asked him for his opinion. "'What do you think yourself?' Roland demanded, not from pusillanimity, but from real uncertainty. "'I think it is curiously bad,' Roderick answered. It was bad from the first, it has fundamental vices. I have shuffled them in a measure out of sight, but I have not corrected them. I can't, I can't, I can't, he cried passionately. They stare me in the face, they are all I see. Rowland offered several criticisms of detail, and suggested certain practicable changes. But Roderick differed with him on each of these points. The thing had faults enough, but they were not those faults. Rowland, unruffled, concluded by saying that whatever its faults might be, he had an idea people in general would like it. I wish to heaven some person in particular would buy it, and take it off my hands and out of my sight, Roderick cried. What am I to do now? he went on. I haven't an idea. I think of subjects, but they remain mere lifeless names. They are mere words. They are not images. What am I to do? Roland was a trifle annoyed. Be a man, he was on the point of saying, and don't, for heaven's sake, talk in that confoundedly querulous voice. But before he had uttered the words, there rang through the studio a loud, peremptory ring at the outer door. Roderick broke into a laugh. Talk of the devil, he said, and you see his horns. If that's not a customer, it ought to be. The door of the studio was promptly flung open, and a lady advanced to the threshold an imposing, voluminous person, who quite filled up the doorway. Roland immediately felt that he had seen her before, but he recognized her only when she moved forward, and disclosed an attendant in the person of a little, bright-eyed, elderly gentleman with a bristling white moustache. Then he remembered that just a year before 
He and his companion had seen in the Ludovisi gardens a wonderfully beautiful girl, strolling in the train of this conspicuous couple. He looked for her now, and in a moment she appeared, following her companions with the same nonchalant step as before, and leading her great snow-white poodle decorated with motley ribbons. The elder lady offered the two young men a sufficiently gracious salute. The little old gentleman bowed and smiled with extreme alertness. The young girl, without casting a glance either at Roderick or at Rowland, looked about for a chair, and on perceiving one sank into it listlessly, pulled her poodle towards her, and began to rearrange his top-knot. Rowland saw that even with her eyes dropped, her beauty was still dazzling. "'I trust we are at liberty to enter,' said the elder lady with majesty. "'We were told that Mr. Hudson had no fixed day, and that we might come at any time. Let us not disturb you.' Roderick, as one of the lesser lights of the Roman art-world, had not hitherto been subject to incursions from inquisitive tourists, and having no regular reception-day was not versed in the usual formulas of welcome. He said nothing, and Roland, looking at him, saw that he was looking amazedly at the young girl, and was apparently unconscious of everything else. "'By Jove!' he cried precipitately. "'It's that goddess of the Villa Ludovisi!' Roland, in some confusion, did the honours as he could, but the little old gentleman begged him with the most obsequious of smiles to give himself no trouble. "'I have been in many a studio,' he said, with his finger on his nose, and a strong Italian accent. "'We are going about everywhere,' said his companion. "'I am passionately fond of art.' Roland smiled sympathetically, and let them turn to Roderick's statue. He glanced again at the young sculptor to invite him to bestir himself but Roderick was still gazing wide-eyed at the beautiful young mistress of the poodle, who by this time had looked up and was gazing straight at him. There was nothing bold in her look. It expressed a kind of languid, imperturbable indifference. Her beauty was extraordinary. It grew and grew as the young man observed her. In such a face the maidenly custom of averted eyes and ready blushes would have seemed an anomaly, Nature had produced it for man's delight, and meant that it should surrender itself freely and coldly to admiration. It was not immediately apparent, however, that the young lady found an answering entertainment in the physiognomy of her host. She turned her head after a moment, and looked idly round the room, and at last let her eyes rest on the statue of the woman seated. It being left to Roland to stimulate conversation, he began by complimenting her, on the beauty of her dog. "'Yes, he's very handsome,' she murmured. "'He's a Florentine. The dogs in Florence are handsomer than the people.' And on Roland's caressing him, "'His name is Stenterello,' she added. "'Stenterello, give your hand to the gentleman.' This order was given in Italian. "'Say buongiorno a lei.' Stenterello thrust out his paw, and gave four short, shrill barks, upon which the elder lady turned round and raised her forefinger. "'My dear, my dear, remember where you are. Excuse my foolish child,' she added, turning to Roderick with an agreeable smile. "'She can think of nothing but her poodle.' "'I am teaching him to talk for me,' the young girl went on, without heeding her mother, "'to say little things in society. It will save me a great deal of trouble.' 
Stentarello, love, give a pretty smile, and say, tanti complimenti. The poodle wagged his white pate. It looked like one of those little pads in swan's down for applying powder to the face, and repeated the barking process. He's a wonderful beast, said Roland. He is not a beast, said the young girl. A beast is something black and dirty, something you can't touch. He is a very valuable dog, the elder lady explained. He was presented to my daughter by a Florentine nobleman. It is not for that that I care about him. It is for himself. He is better than the prince. My dear, my dear, repeated the mother in deprecating accents, but with a significant glance at Roland, which seemed to bespeak his attention to the glory of possessing a daughter who could deal in that fashion with the aristocracy. End of chapter 4, part A